Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. One of the striking facts about the coronavirus pandemic is that the most powerful countries in the world today, the United States and China, have also been the ones that have taken the strongest blows. The pandemic has had a drastic impact on the Chinese economy, putting the brakes on a decades-long Chinese growth story. Meanwhile, the United States is racked by a public health crisis as well as massive unemployment and floundering businesses. In some respects, perhaps the worst economic slowdown since the Great Depression. Globally too, both countries are facing something of a crisis of credibility stemming from their handling of the pandemic at home. Their flexing of muscles against each other and at international institutions is not helping matters very much. All this has also seriously undermined their ability to cooperate effectively in the fight against the pandemic. How Washington and Beijing will handle the current situation not only impacts their claims of global leadership but also of the fortunes of many countries in Asia. We are joined today by Evan Feigenbaum to discuss how the pandemic has exacerbated the geopolitical and economic competition between the United States and China. What all of this means for the rest of Asia including India. Evan is Vice President for Studies at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace where he oversees much of research that is happening across our offices in Asia. He has also served in the US State Department in various senior capacities between 2001 and 2009. Evan has published extensively on Asia and has written some very influential pieces that have shaped how American administrations have thought about the region. Evan, welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks for having me. It's great to be colleagues and it's great to do this. Evan, I want to talk to you today a lot about China the United States and China and what all of this means for India but given your particular vantage point i think it might actually be useful to start with something of an overview from you on where you think asia as a whole particularly east asia is as far as covid is concerned how is the pandemic affected the region what's been the response how do you see this crisis reshaping the region as a whole well i think uh, the first thing to say about the responses of asian countries is that they in many cases have been able to leverage off their experience in recent decades because the SARS crisis which was another viral respiratory infection caused by a coronavirus uh happened in 2002 and 2003 and at that point uh places like Korea like Taiwan like Hong Kong like China actually had quite a bit of experience in terms of both developing a government public health role but also uh adapting to those kinds of epidemics and so they've leveraged that experience and it's not surprising therefore that a lot of the success stories have been in asia i think it's you know it's early to reach a lot of conclusions but i think what we're going to say about asia in the end is that really the region encapsulated both the success stories in terms of dealing with the pandemic i'm thinking here about places like korea 
and Taiwan in particular, but also Singapore and elsewhere, that really were able to leverage technology in particular uh, to uh, a public health strategy. In some places, the story is really about uh, intensive testing and contact tracing. In other places, it's the use of big data and artificial intelligence-enabled applications to basically do that kind of tracing uh, and to uh, better implement public health measures. So th that's the part of the Asian story that I think we're going to reflect on and, and say that's interesting. What lessons can we draw from that? But I also think there are other parts of Asia, like Indonesia, where um, the story is really only just beginning. And a lot of the challenges that were already in place in the region, uh, weak institutions, um, the potential for social fragmentation. In some ways, the pandemic may exacerbate those. So I think um, it's early, but both in the use of technology, but also in the way that a lot of the underlying conclusions we had about what made Asian governments competent, uh, strong in terms of uh, governance fundamentals or not, those are the things that are really being reinforced. And so there'll be a lot of lessons to draw from the region at the end of it. Sure. And in economic terms, obviously, this is a public health crisis in the first instance. But in economic terms, given that East Asia is more or less the, the main dynamo of economic growth in the global economy, uh, do you think East Asia will kind of rebound from this particular crisis and be a leader there still? Or are there going to be longer term challenges uh, to these economies? Well, I think it's already clear that there are longer-term challenges and short-term and acute challenges in some of the places that have been growth drivers for the region. I mean, the most obvious case is China, which just contracted 6.8% um, in, the, in the first quarter. And where um, a lot of the longer-term fundamental challenges, which really uh, had bedeviled the system, are going to be have to they're going to have to deal with them in a much more difficult context now. I mean, if you look at China, I mean, the the economic and social indicators for the first part of this year were not only weaker than nearly all of the forecasts, but are especially dire when you view them in historical terms. So it's not just the growth contraction, it's everything. Retail sales year on year, they fell something like 20 0.5%. Industrial production fell by 13% or so. Um, and these are really China's worst numbers on record. And so there's a clear political imperative in a place like China to support the most vulnerable parts of the economy. That means reigniting the workforce and supporting employment growth. But it's also true that um, China needs to reinflate a lot of parts of the economy in a short-term sense. Uh, and, and they're going to find a lot of challenges in doing that. The rest of the region, I think the stories going to be similar. Um, the longer term stories are interesting because of the way that supply chains may be rejiggered over time. Um, and that begins to get us into interesting aspects of the China story. There's certainly a debate ongoing in the United States, in Europe, and other places about the way supply chains evolved over the last 20 or 25 years and the need to reduce dependence on single points of failure, at minimum through the creation of more redundancy in certain industrial and manufacturing uh, and good supply chains, but also because of uh, some concerns about how China fits into those. Um, and that also touches longer term debates, particularly in the United States, about both competitiveness and national security and also what 
economic integration with China has meant for the U.S. trajectory long term. And so those debates actually have been entrenched and reinforced by what's happened in the crisis. And I think you're going to see that play out in much more intensive ways. And China's going to have its own version of those. So there's going to be opportunities in that sense for other economies to pick up parts of the supply chain in other areas. And that reinforces, again, some of what was already going on. But I think um, the role of China and all that is going to be particularly uh, pregnant and intense in the debate. Right. And then we've had some discussion in India as well about this. Just yesterday, our prime minister uh, in, in a statement has said that, you know, there is going to be this rejigging of supply chains and India should be preparing to position itself and so on. I'll come back to that point uh, a little later in the discussion. But could we just stay with China for just a minute and talk a little bit more about what do you think are the kinds of economic levers that Beijing has to be able to keep the Chinese economy uh, on life support while the crisis uh, and the pandemic itself is bought fully under control? We know the Chinese are also sort of, you know, trying to make strides towards the development of a vaccine. There's something of a kind of a race going on there. Uh, but but do you think China has the staying power in economic terms to keep the economy supported till such time we get this under control? They've adopted a raft of measures that suggest that the leadership's main directive is not necessarily to bolster growth per se, despite the fact that there's been a lot of public posturing around the GDP target. I think their focus is really to reduce risk among the most vulnerable businesses and in the most vulnerable sectors of the economy. And that's particularly the case with small and medium-sized enterprises because they constitute a huge percentage of domestic enterprises and they contribute both a lot of tax revenue and a huge chunk of urban employment. It's something like 70 or 80% of urban employment. Um, and if you look at the official data, whatever you think of official data in China, the, oper the operation resumption uh, ratio of small and medium-sized companies that provide a lot of that employment um, is nowhere near 100%. Um, and so that raises risk of business failure for a large segment of the enterprises that provide employment in China. And that begins to get us into what I think that Chinese leadership really focuses on politically, which increasingly really is about employment at two ends of the labor market spectrum. Um, one is uh, college graduates and urban white-collar workers who either are entering the workforce or for whom a lot of jobs need to be created. And at the other end, migrant workers who are central to the manufacturing economy, particularly in export-related sectors, but also are a potential source of instability, both in their home provinces and in the places where they work. Um, a lot of these economic issues are refracted through that political prism. Um, a lot of the basic contracts in China, the social contract, the political contract, these things have eroded uh, over the last decade to decade and a half. And that's the reason why Xi Jinping talks so much since he be, he's become the leader of China, not just about growth for growth's sake, but about welfare gains and what I would characterize as kind of social equity. I mean, if you think about the prevailing social contract in China, it was essentially that um, um, people would have avenues to grow rich, to achieve material 
wealth and material gain. But in simplest terms, they would stay out of organized politics. And the problem that the Chinese leadership and government has had over the last decade or so is that, you know, when you have 350 million people that have achieved greater material gain as a result of reaping the windfalls of economic reform over many decades, um, their expectations and demands begin to transcend merely material things. Uh, people want social gains and social goods. They want food that they can eat because it's safe. They want air that they can breathe because it's not polluted. They want water that's safe to drink. They want a medical supply chain that's reliable, uh, not, you know, toxic products and so on. And so for the last decade to decade and a half, particularly among urban middle classes in China, expectations and demands have begun to transcend merely material things. And I think, you know, the Chinese leadership has been acutely aware of that. And it's one reason the social contract is eroded. And it's one reason why if you look at Xi Jinping's speeches, other than Leninist discipline and party discipline and that set of messages, which is directed at the Communist Party and tightening up the political system. The broader set of messages for the public really turns on this package of issues around, around welfare gains. Um, and in Chinese terms, better governance, more predictable governance, albeit in a Leninist context and in a one-party dictatorship run by a communist party. And so judged in those terms, um, I think that the crisis is really an acute problem for them because they have a huge problem of employment for urban businesses, small businesses, retail businesses. Uh, they have the potential for unrest among migrant workers, and they're clearly acutely sensitive about that. And that's why if you look at the measures they've adopted, everything from reducing social security premiums, deferring payments for small and medium-sized businesses, providing various forms of tax relief, extending loans. That's, that's where their focus has been. And it shows both of the depth and level of concern, um, but I think also how, how big the challenges are for them going forward. And the other major plank of Xi Jinping's sort of policies over the last few years has really been about projecting China on the global stage, right? I mean, we saw the Belt and Road Initiative, a range of other things which have been happening uh, over the past four or five years, uh, whereby uh, President Xi Jinping is clearly making a bid to present China as the coming power in world politics and so on. Now, how do you think this crisis has really affected China's standing on the international stage, uh, by which I mean both in terms of its material capacity to actually influence uh, how this crisis plays out and what's happening, as well as the debates around China's own sort of laxness in the early stage or its benevolence or claims to benevolence more recently. Uh, how, how do you think this entire uh, set of narratives which are playing out uh, about China more broadly outside of China going to impact on China's claims to being some kind of a future leader? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally think their reputation has taken a big hit, um, particularly in the United States and in Europe, where there's going to be a reckoning in the aftermath about how China managed this and what degree of responsibility and culpability can be applied to the Chinese system. And that's going to be litigated out in strategic terms. And we can talk about the United States separately because the United States and China were already entrenching not just strategic competition. I would almost call it a kind of managed enmity. But Europe is the more interesting case because if you look at 
you know, the limited 5G telecommunication approvals in places like the United Kingdom, for instance, um, from where the UK was going even just three or four months ago to the way Dominic Rabb, the foreign secretary, is now talking about China or Macron in France is talking about China, there clearly is a lot of um, concern about what China showcased in this and also uh, a view, particularly among publics in Europe, that there needs to be some kind of reckoning. Now, what that means in strategic terms, I think, is not so clear, um, because convergence of grievance is not the same thing as convergence of interest. And I think in the United States and Europe, there is, broadly speaking, a sense of grievance about China now that's been entrenched and reinforced by the, the pandemic. But that's not the same thing as saying there's a convergence of interest that leads to a convergence of strategies, much less tactics. And there's a lot more tactical convergence than strategic convergence. And when you throw India and, and other countries around the world into the mix, um, it becomes much more complicated. Lots of countries have, have senses of grievance with China, but they don't necessarily come out in the same place or for the same reason. So I said to somebody recently on another podcast that I thought we were heading for an international system that was characterized really by fragmentation, um, where, uh, you know, rather than form driving function as it did in the Cold War, where you had relatively stable blocks characterized by a convergence of interest and ideology, um, you really, uh, sometimes you have convergence of interests that are not based on ideological convergence, where countries with very different regimes come out the same place for interest-based reasons. Uh, you also have shifting coalitions of interests around different functions. So I just see a lot of potential for fragmentation, and it's hard to sort through where China fits into that, because what China has leveraged to extend its power globally, but especially in Asia, it was never really, in my view, based on attraction or on the things that we characterize as soft power. So all this hoo-ha that you hear about China's medical supply diplomacy and sending ventilators and masks, I think countries will accept the ventilators and the masks, but that doesn't mean they're swayed by China's soft power. Um, there's a lot of cynicism about that. And what's more, that may not really matter at the end of the day, because my view is that particularly in Asia, what enabled the extension of Chinese power wasn't really that kind of soft power attraction. It was that China was leveraging the map and China was leveraging what I would call economic gravity. By the map, I, I just mean that if you think about the map of Asia, China is the only country in the region that's contiguous to every subregion of the Eurasian landmass. It's contiguous to Central Asia, to South Asia, to Southeast Asia, and to Northeast Asia. And so you mentioned the Belt and Road, for instance. On something like that, it just gives China the ability to leverage the map in a way that other prospective competitors cannot. You can build a highway from Tajikistan to China. You can't build a bridge from California to, to, to Kyrgyzstan. And the same thing is true of India, which can leverage the map in its South Asian periphery. But I, I, you know, I'm a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State of the United States for Central Asia, for example. And every time I go to Delhi, I hear a lot about Central Asia. But India is not really contiguous because it requires either Iran for transit or Pakistan for transit or Afghanistan for transit. And so China can leverage the map on things like the Belt and Road in the way that other competitors can't. And then there's the reality of economic gravity. 
Um, China just has billions of dollars either in state-backed funds or in policy banks or on the balance sheets of corporates that it's been able to leverage. And it does a kind of project finance that, for instance, the United States just does not. The United States doesn't uh, make state-backed investments through state-backed policy banks in quite the same way. And so the question now is, does this begin to attenuate either in the Belt and Road the kinds of resources that China has available for those hard power based extensions of its influence, uh, or does it begin to change perceptions in ways that really begin to attenuate that in terms of countries' relationships with China? And I think it's too early to say that, but I do think we're headed possibly for a multi tiered set of reactions where in uh, developing countries versus OECD economies, there are going to be just different realities vis a vis strategic and particularly economic relationships with China. And that produces, a, as I said, a reinforcement and entrenchment of what I call fragmentation internationally. Right. And we've also seen some moves by China, for instance, uh, in the recent G20 meeting, which happened on the 15th of April. Uh, China has agreed to suspend debt payments uh, for about eight months. Uh, this has been seen as something of a contrast with, you know, typically the tough way in which China bargains over uh, various kinds of uh, issues pertaining to debt and attempts to extract political concessions uh, from those kinds of things. So, so perhaps uh, Beijing is also, you know, going along with the flow at this point of time to try and see how best to manage this situation, which is quite unprecedented for most emerging markets as well. Yeah, although to be honest, I mean, I'm not very surprised by it. There's a, there's been so much discussion of kind of a Chinese debt trap in certain countries just given the debt levels, particularly in places like Kyrgyzstan or, or Maldives, even Sri Lanka, although Sri Lanka had a huge amount of commercial debt that wasn't just owed to China, it was owed to other international creditors. But I mean, that narrative, um, while true in some places, has tended to obscure the longer term and multi-case history of Chinese debt forgiveness in other places. The Center for Global Development had a study a few years ago that, as I recall, had an appendix at the back of it that, that listed out all of the Chinese debt restructurings over the years. And there are, there are literally dozens of them. I mean, dozens in the multiples. So the Chinese have done that. There's some history of that. I mean, as you said, they bargain on long, tough terms. I mean, China's mainly focused on its own interests. But there is some history of that, and I'm not completely surprised. When I was in the State Department, I did both terms of the George W. Bush administration. And in the first term, after uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, former Secretary of State and Treasury James Baker was the special envoy globally for uh, Iraqi debt relief. And at that point, he was going to Beijing and having debt relief discussions with China because China held some Iraqi debt. Um, and uh, he was successful in that. So there is a history of this. But of course, the scope and scale of China's involvement in terms of um, bilateral lending and the nature of bilateral debt's a little different today. But I, I'm not that I'm not that surprised. And I, I think that the question I have is whether China begins to coordinate more with the Paris Club and do it uh, um, in a more uh, multinational way that's coordinated with the international financial institutions and begins to converge with some norms around that. And that's always that's essentially what the debate about China has been the responsible stakeholder debate, the role of China in global governance. That's what the debate has been about. They subscribe to many of the forms of international order that the United States prefers. You know, they're the number three shareholder, for instance, in the Asian Development Bank. They've contributed to various rounds of IMF and IDA replenishment 
International Development Association of Replenishment. But even though they subscribe to the forums, they don't necessarily subscribe, subscribe to the preferred norms that the United States has. So on something like debt relief and debt forgiveness, um, the degree to which China coordinates with, say, the Paris Club, um, and there's agreement around a shared set of modalities for that, that that's an important signal and indicator of where China's going. And I think, you know, the jury's still out on that. Okay, so let's move on to talk a little bit about the U.S.-China relations. Uh, you already alluded to your sort of background assessment, which is that the United States and China were already in some kind of a managed rivalry even before the COVID crisis came on. But at the same time, just before uh, the pandemic really hit, we also had some kind of a interim agreement on trade between the two countries, and it seemed like things might be on something of an even keel, at least until the U.S. presidential election got finished. But then COVID came along. Uh, so where are we now? Well, I don't think there's anything about the U.S.-China relationship that's on, on an even keel. Um, essentially, uh, the relationship is in free fall and, uh, and spiraling downward. And I, I think you need to view that partly in historical context. Um, you know, all of the talk about strategic competition recently belies the degree to which I think there's always been strategic competition from the inception of the relationship. The, the modern inception of an official relationship between Chinese communism and what I would call American constitutionalism dates to the Nixon visit in 1972. And in 1972, when Richard Nixon landed in Beijing, China was still crawling its way out of the Cultural Revolution. And the United States and China were fighting a proxy war in Vietnam, where China, uh, you know, backed the North Vietnamese government. So from the very inception, the U.S. and China have had clashing security concepts, and they've had obvious differences of ideology and political system. And those have always been there in the background. They've waxed and waned in terms of the role they've played in the relationship. But um, we shouldn't pretend that there, there haven't been very considerable security and ideological rifts from the very beginning of this official relationship with the Chinese Communist Party and, and, and the U.S. political system. Um, that said, I think in the 1990s, and particularly after China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001, um, both sides placed a bet on the idea that integration through flows of goods, capital, people, and technology would not make security competition go away, but it would mitigate uh, the degree to which security competition would completely ride U.S.-China interaction off the rails. So to put that another way, uh, economic integration would help to mitigate the debilitating effects of security competition. But now if you fast forward to today and you think about where the U.S. and China are, um, uh, you know, the U.S. and China are enormously integrated economically. Goods, capital, people, technology, all of those goods. There's a $700 billion plus two-way trading relationship. Um, you know, there uh, the $100 billion plus of U.S. foreign direct investment stock, of, you know, historically in China. Um, 
uh, in the last, you know, not a lot of Chinese investment coming to the United States has now been short-circuited and attenuated, both by U.S. suspicion, but also over the last few years, capital controls in China. There was a, there was a growing amount of Chinese deal flow into the United States, people-to-people exchange, hundreds of thousands of people going both ways. But despite all of that integration, not only has security competition not been mitigated, but if anything, it's intensified. And worse... Security issues are now bleeding back into every one of those areas of economic integration, with the possible exception of flows of goods. But even there, if you look at the debates around coronavirus, about dependence on medical equipment supply chains, even there, there's a kind of securitization of the debate about economic integration. And so where we are now is that Economic integration, all of these things, flows of goods, capital, people, technology, they're being refracted back through this prism of security competition and national security issues. And that's not much of a basis on which to have a relationship, because if you take out the economic integration, what you're left with, as I said, is security competition, clashing security concepts, and the same ideological differences that have always been there between Chinese communism and American constitutionalism. And so that's not really a basis for building a relationship. And so if you pivot from that to look at, say, the lack of coordination between the United States and China in the international system around a pandemic, it's it's not it's not very surprising. There's a high degree of mutual suspicion. There's a real zero-sum mentality on both sides. Um, China did not, as we discussed earlier, cover itself in glory in the early phases of this. They suppressed whistleblowers. They turned to a highly uh, provocative propaganda campaign that was designed to deflect blame from their early missteps, even charging uh, the United States and Italy with potentially having brought the virus to China. And so that just reinforces and entrenches a lot of that suspicion. And so if you're in that environment, um, you're really in free fall. And to my mind, there's not a lot that's going to arrest that in the near term. And so on acute issues around coordination, it, it's very hard to get an international system to function properly when the two most important actors in the system are not only not coordinating, but they're actually working at cross purposes and obstructing one another. And so I, I'm kind of of the very cynical view that it, at least in terms of public health and economic mitigation effects, the only way to arrest this dynamic is really for third countries, uh, the Japans, the Indias, the European unions of the world, uh, to basically find ways to coordinate with one another and then thrust China, the United States, or both of them, into the position of being the spoiler of meaningful collective action. And we've seen that in other contexts that are a little bit different than the pandemic. The best example to me of that is trade rules. You know, if you look at how the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, evolved in the Asia-Pacific region, it was not initially an American idea, of course. It started with a group of four countries, Singapore, Chile, New Zealand, and Brunei, that were first movers within the APEC group uh, toward a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific. Um, but when the United States joined at the end of the Bush administration in 2008, and then particularly when the negotiations with the U.S. begin to ramp up in the Obama administration, the way that President Obama sold the TPP domestically in the United States in 2016 was to refract it through the prism of geopolitical competition with China. He said this, if the United States doesn't write the rules, then China will write the rules. And so if that's the case, by logical intuition, when President Trump withdrew the United States from the TPP, what should have happened? 
China should have come in to write the trade and investment rules for the region. But actually, that's not what happened. What happened was that when the United States withdrew, not only did China not write the rules, but the other 11 ended up writing the rules, albeit influenced by what the United States had helped to negotiate for the region with neither China nor the United States in the room. And so you have a situation in which the U.S. and China now have to adapt to a set of conditions, rules, norms, and standards set by others. And that's what I meant by fragmentation. I think what we're going to have now is function driving form rather than the other way around. And on all sorts of meaningful economic, public health, and potentially even security functions, you'll have shifting coalitions of partnerships, ad hoc, not necessarily locked in through institutions, and potentially the United States and China or both of them on the back foot. And how the United States navigates that environment is going to be very interesting and challenging because um, to get a stable world order, you really either need ideological convergence uh, or you need something like a convergence of interests. And, you know, you're not going to get ideological convergence around a liberal international order because President Trump is not a, he's neither liberal nor a liberal internationalist. And then, as we were saying earlier, um, there's a lot of convergence of grievance around China, but it's not clear to me how deep the convergence of interest is, um, except at a very high level of abstraction around, around China's threat to certain countries and certain regional orders. And so, um, and so all of this, I think, both in the U.S.-China context and then how China and the U.S. try to leverage partnerships to try to enlist not allies but partners in that competition, um, it's, it's not really clear how that's going to play out. And I actually would predict it's going to reinforce this fragmentary dynamic. Right. And all of this is, of course, happening in a year when the United States is going in for a presidential election. and you know, even early on, as you were saying, there was something of a bipartisan consensus around the competition with China, the kinds of security, economic, ideological challenges emanating from that particular relationship. Uh, but but clearly, President Trump has many other more short-term political considerations in mind as he's seeking to navigate this particular thing. Even, even the China angle, for instance, seems to be refracting very much through those short-term considerations to some extent. Well, I think it's clear now that the China angle is going to be a big part of our presidential election, which I would not have necessarily thought six months ago. But um, if you look at what's flying back and forth between the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign and their proxies, um, it's heavily focused on China in interesting ways. Um, The president's team has clearly decided that uh, China is a wedge issue that they can use against the Biden campaign. And the Biden campaign, through some advertisements that they've already started to put out, have decided that uh, they're going to punch back at that. Um, That, in a sense, is not all that surprising, just because at at the electoral level, you know, nobody ever won votes in not just in this country, but frankly, in any country by running against China. I mean, we've seen this dynamic in lots of places. So so nobody ever lost votes that way. Um, I think it does raise the question longer term of not just the degree to which there's a consensus on bipartisan lines, but the depth of it around China as a an organizing concept for American strategy in the world. And again, at a high level of abstraction, there's certainly a growing consensus around that. If you look at a lot of the China debates and how they're playing around in 
Washington, both in terms of whether and the degree to which China poses a threat to international order, what kind of threat China is, whether China's a revisionist power or not a revisionist power, the importance of great power competition. There is a lot of bipartisanship around that. Um, and it plays out in uh, functional issues, too. Um, the whole technology debate around decoupling from China, deintegration of the two economies, uh, 5G telecom uh, as a national security threat, that unites Republicans and Democrats in, in Washington and on Capitol Hill. On the Republican side, it's people like Senators Tom Cotton, Marco Rivia, John Cornyn. On the Democratic side, uh, people like Senator Mark Warner. Um, they share a lot of views on that. And so there is a convergence around some of that. I think once you get outside the Washington context, though, um, it's less obvious how that's going to uh, play out with the public. There are two reasons for that. One, the polling is lagging the elite consensus. Um, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs does interesting polling, and um, some of the polling around China issues kind of lags where Washington opinion is. Uh, views of China have become much more negative over the last few years, and that's not very surprising. And when you peel the onion, and it's not just a high-level question about China, but it becomes issue specific. Um, the polling data begins to fragment a little bit. But the other thing, and I, I've argued this a lot before because I was kind of a Washington guy who left Washington and moved to the Midwest. And then now I'm back in Washington at the Carnegie Endowment. The reality is the number of stakeholders who touch China has become much more multifaceted and diverse in the United States. And at a time when the old stakeholders that really built the relationship of the last 30 years have soured on China and on the old U.S.-China relationship, this by that I mean foreign policy elites, um, Wall Street and financial services firms, big multinational corporations, those were the stakeholders in the past, and they all have soured on China for their own reasons. There are other constituencies that came to be integrated with China in new ways. I'm thinking about you know, farmers, ranchers, agribusiness constituencies that depended on Chinese demand uh, to, to sell American supply in all parts of the agribusiness value chain, uh, tech, where there was a lot of co-innovation between American tech firms and Chinese tech firms, uh, American firms that wanted access to the very unique manufacturing ecosystem in Shenzhen in southern China, where production cycles are very short. If you want to, you know, prototype, tweak, and turn around a hardware product on a very short production cycle, Shenzhen became the place that for a lot of American firms, that was the place you wanted to do it. And you had a lot of American companies in different industries that were not the traditional industries working with China, but where their growth strategy was premised very much on expansion into China. Um, those stakeholders became part of the U.S.-China relationship over the last 10 to 15 years in ways that were not the case before. So you have more stakeholders. So at a high level of abstraction, everybody's soured on China. There's no love for China anywhere in the United States anymore. But um, what that means as things get harder, as the U.S. and China begin to deintegrate, as I expect them to do in some areas, and what that means... Um, for various of these newer constituencies, as I said, farmers and ranchers, consumers, um, 
uh, mayors and governors that wanted to attract investment or they have companies that were depending on expansion into China in their states and cities. That's not as clear to me. But in Washington, for sure, there is what I would characterize as a bipartisan consensus now on um, the fact that China poses a competitive threat both to American power and to the way the United States would generally like to see the international system ordered and function. Um, but uh, turning that into an operational concept, I think we're still in the early phases of that. Uh, Evan, one last question. You know, In the past, you wrote a fairly influential article where you talked about there being two Asias one economic and the other security, both of which operated according to quite different logics. And I've always found that to be a very useful framework within which to think about what's happening uh, in this part of the world, even from the vantage point of India. Uh, and today you've told us that you see a much more fragmented landscape uh, with uh, perhaps, you know, opportunity for leadership for countries beyond the United States and China to shape some of this landscape to a certain degree uh, and perhaps draw them in from the outside, as it were. Uh, so given all of this diagnosis, uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts for what a country like India should be thinking about as it navigates this landscape? Yeah, well, I think, you know, so that article that I wrote uh, with my friend Bob Manning in 2012 was called A Tale of Two Asias. And um, what we did was essentially to argue that the central strategic dynamic in Asia over the last 25 years was essentially the collision between economics and security. Or to put that another way, between economic integration and security fragmentation. And so you could tell the story of Asia in two completely different ways. That was the notion of two Asias. It's kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. So on the one hand, you had the world's most successful region of the last, I'd say, 50 years. A region that was trading together, building together, investing together, growing together. Um, where intra-Asian trade was becoming more important and where really all boats were rising. Um, but you could tell the story of the same region and the same countries in a completely different way. Um, a region beset by powerful nationalisms, latent territorial disputes and irredentism, uh, where countries were building blue water navies, plowing more money into defense budgets and really arming for conflict. Um, and for a long time, th those two really ran in parallel lines. Um, the region was, was integrating economically, even though it still had the potential for security fragmentation. And those latent tensions were always there. And I used to argue that from the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 98 until about 2010, which, by the way, predates the, the emergence of Xi Jinping as the top leader of China, what I called economic Asia was decidedly winning the contest. But after 2010, these security pathologies that we thought had been frozen in time really roared back with a vengeance. And as you saw, when I told the story of the U.S.-China relationship, which is really that in microcosm, um, the security dynamics have really bled back into the economics in ways that are very, very debilitating and have the potential to ride off the rails a lot of the things that made the region successful. Um, so the first question for the region is whether it can manage and mitigate those security dynamics in ways that don't throw off course a lot of what basically made the region so successful and was so good for so many uh, millions and millions of people in the region. That's the first question. I think it's not as clear to me today as it was uh, 
you know, when I wrote that article in 2012, when I wrote it in 2012, we were worried about the security dynamic. But now I think it's clear that what we were worried about um, has essentially come to pass. And the security dynamic is really replacing that kind of integrative economic dynamic. Um, the second question is how China sits in that. And that's where we really come to the question of India. I mean, India really wasn't part of that in, in many ways because um, – uh, India wasn't integrated into the regional supply chains that were really the backbone of all of that economic integration in Asia. Um, if you look just at Indian trade with the 10 countries of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and you compare it to China's historically, you know, China was sitting around 125 to 13%. India was sitting down around 29 to 3%, and that was pretty consistent, and it's not hard to understand why. It's because if you don't make anything, yet you're not integrated into those supply chains. So the good news is when Prime Minister Modi talks about making India, um, that has the potential to leverage some of what we saw in states like Tamil Nadu uh, or states in the South that I think were becoming more manufacturing hubs, and we're beginning to integrate in different ways. But of course, um, to make in India, it's not just about having a manufacturing policy. You know, the UPA2 government also had a national manufacturing policy that, if I remember correctly, was designed to take manufacturing from 16% of GDP to around 25% of GDP. But in the event, as you know, sure enough, you know, man, the share of manufacturing in India's GDP actually shrank in, in, in UPA2. Unless That's I'm right. mistaken about that. And and so having a manufacturing policy is not really the story of manufacturing. You need to get factor policies right around land, around labor. Um, and 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 there we, you know, we don't need to rehash it, but we know the kinds of uh, issues, challenges, and struggles that India's had. So so I think that, you know, the, the core issue for India really is whether it can position itself in terms of the supply chain realities that are going to shift over the next five years. Um, uh, in ways that not only advantage India, but also integrate India into that economic story of Asia as countries figure out how to ride those security dynamics and, and really alter their relationships with China as a result. But I think it's important to note that India has got a lot of competition in that. Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Bangladesh in some sectors, Indonesia, um, Thailand. And, uh, you know, those, some of those countries have stronger intellectual property protection. Some of those countries have stronger uh, labor market policies, in my view. And so... Um, India really needs to find a way to tie its domestic debates to some of those regional debates. And, um, you know, again, I keep using this phrase, it's early, early innings to use an American baseball metaphor. But I think if you were, if you were focused on how India would integrate with that, um, you'd have reason for concern about the way some of those domestic debates have played out and, and particularly how they played out around the regional comprehensive economic partnership. And, and so the opportunity is there for India. Um, but, uh, but I, I think India has a long way to go in terms of some of the fundamentals on that. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. No, I absolutely agree with everything you said there. And, uh, Evan, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope this is just the first of many conversations that we're going to have with you as we try to make sense of what all of this means for India. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. And let me just say again, how great it is to be colleagues with everybody at Carnegie India. One, we're one team, and it's, uh, it's something really special about the Carnegie Endowment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe 
and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.